0: Hey, there, green future growers. Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite Android app and let's get growing. Hey, everyone. So I just want to remind you that this is the time that is most important. You're taking good notes about what's going on in your garden. What's working well, what's not working well, what do you wish you were going to change? And believe me, if you think you are going to remember it come next February and March when it's time to order supplies or do your designs, the best thing you can do is right now start taking notes. And if you don't have a journal already, I just want to mention from Amazon, you can support the Green Organic Gardener podcast by purchasing our journal Um, it's a blank journal. It's got a beautiful picture of a butterfly on our lilacs that I took. It's got lined pages and blank pages. Um, and actually we get more from that, I think, than we do from the Organic Oasis Master guidebook. So, um, it would be a great way to support the show and help you most of all, keep a good record of what's going right and what you don't want to forget to change for next year. Welcome to the Green Organic Gardener. It is Friday, July 3rd, 2020, and I have one of the most awesome guests ever to come on the show. She was recommended by Robin Kelson and Patty Armstrong. Robin actually went all the way to New Zealand to work with her. She is a soil expert, and she is here to talk to us. She wrote a book, for the love of soil, strategies to regenerate our food production systems. You might have even read it already, and now you are going to hear from the master herself, Nicole Masters. So welcome (laughs) to the show, Nicole.
1: Thanks for having me, Jackie. That's like the best introduction lead-in of all time. Yeah, I really appreciate being here. Thank you.
0: Well, we are so excited to have you. And I know you are gonna drop golden seeds. That's what I call like golden nuggets oh. or value bombs or what people say on other podcasters. I just know, like I told you in the email, um, soil health is without a doubt the key to my show. And so, yeah. um, and then Patty Armister has her own little fan club. Like one of my listeners was yes. like, I'm the president, and like they just <laughs> love her. And she was like, How come you haven't had Nicole Masters on your show yet? And I'm like what did happen with that? And I guess I never sent you the email. So I meant to last year when I first heard about you and I dropped the ball. So thank you so much. And, um, go ahead and tell listeners about yourself. Like what time is it where you are? You're in New Zealand, right?
1: No way. When COVID hit, I got on a plane and I got to Montana. So right now
0: I'm
1: in Idaho. Yeah. I have a trailer and a horse here in Montana. Um, And so, yeah, I just, yeah, just kind of really looked at what I was doing and, you know, I was at the start of a book tour and, you know, my schedule was pretty much the most I was staying anywhere was like three days traveling through Australia and New Zealand and Canada and, and yeah, I guess COVID hit and I was so grateful because I was like, I need to stop. I need to reconsolidate. I need to, yeah, just not be rushing around the planet. Um, which I think a lot of people have that same experience. So yeah, I I feel like I'm a lot more settled now. (laughs) Isn't
0: that interesting? You did not want to be in New Zealand and wanted to be in the United States for the pandemic. I mean, I guess I've said repeatedly, if you have to be in it, Montana is like the best place to be, but New Zealand seemed to um, be on top of things. Like, aren't they one of the best countries?
1: well they are in terms of like total lockdown and quarantine but I don't have a house or a base in New Zealand so I was like where would I quarantine where would I totally lock life down and I was um, if I was going to lock down I want to be with my horse I want to be able to be out in the mountains and and working cows and and I just didn't have that set up in New Zealand so it seemed much more I mean all my friends do think I'm insane like and you know the media certainly overseas isn't putting very good light on america um but i knew that you know ranching life would pretty much continue as usual which is what's happening anyway
0: fascinating well i always kind of start my show asking about your very first garden experience like to oh, go cool. up on a ranch like were you yeah. like who were you with what'd you grow where where did you grow up i guess um i where grew up on
1: I grew up on air force bases, so my father was a pilot. I was an air force brat, um, but my very first earliest memories are all of gardening. So my my father and my grandmother, you know, they we always had home gardens. But my mum always tells these stories of when I first learnt to crawl. She couldn't find me, and she found me in the garden with my little pinky finger inside a snail shell, eating snails. Um, <laughs> which <laughs> she's forever. <laughs> Teasing me about, but yeah, I mean, I just, you know, I used to follow my father around like a puppy dog and, you know, so planting radishes and planting my own radishes probably, I don't know, it must have been three or four, you know, really, really little, Um, and eating a lot of soil. I'm a big advocate of eating soil. So, (laughs) yeah, so I think um, my father was really enjoyed camping and really enjoyed, you know, being in the New Zealand bush and. So I think, and I think New Zealand, we don't have that big rural urban divide that seems to exist and and maybe we do now, but certainly growing up, you know, there were horse paddocks and cattle paddocks all around. And I had uh, relatives that were deer farmers and dairy farmers and uh, just always felt very connected to agriculture. Um, And it wasn't until I was 24 that my father brought a farm and I went with him and we basically started from scratch um, planted 700 avocado trees re-established a wetland uh put in um you know different types of orchard species and yeah it was a, both of us had knew nothing I had been managing community gardens when I was 24 it was what I did when I left university was um very lucky to kind of strike that job and at the same time you know I'd been gardening for a few years and um was just very lucky to have a position like that because you know you really do get thrown in the deep end and you need to be researching and, and, and experimenting and figuring out what works and what was interesting with those community gardens was they were given to us they were set up in the middle of a low socioeconomic economic community um, that didn't want them and hadn't asked for them and didn't appreciate people basically coming to the community so we had a lot of vandalism we had a lot of um you know people coming in and smashing everything up and tipping out all the seedling trays and it was sort of some of my early thinking around you don't force change on people you need to engage with communities you need to invite and bring people along with you not go hey we know this is the best thing for you and we're going to have it happen so it was an extraordinary time of learning and
0: that was in New Zealand where you yeah and then, so
1: where did you go to, did you go to college for agriculture? I went to university for, um, I did an ecology degree, actually wanting to be a great white shark researcher. Um, but when you, you know, if you want to get into zoology or anything like that, you need to do basic cell biology we did botany, we did um, conservation science, did all sorts of, like, I love ecology degrees in terms of they're so varied. And through that, I really got excited about plants. And then uh, I really got excited about soil. And it was like, I ended up majoring in soil, thinking that I wanted to be a great white shark researcher, which is fascinating still. Um, Because soil is just it's the new frontier, you know, it's, um, the more that we learn about it, the more that we learn about our own human microbiome and the connections with like how we evolved as human beings and how much of that microbiology actually comes from soil and how much of it has to say in terms of health and well um, that they've developed a vaccine for PTSD, for instance, that comes from a soil bacterium. So it's like, um, yeah, it just never, never gets dull.
0: That's just fascinating to me. Mm. Mm. Um, and how anybody like goes into soil in college. <laughs> Actually, yeah. to be honest with you, I took a lot of botany classes in college for somebody who was like a liberal arts major. Um, cause I yeah. did I liked plants and flowers and I wanted to get a job for the Forest Service here going around in the forest and like you did like these surveys of you know like how many wildflowers how many trees how many of this or that which I lasted all of two days after all this work to get the job <laughs> <laughs> and I got lost in the woods and I was like I'm done <laughs> <was just> two, <laughs> I don't know I, there were some oh, other thing, factors in there I did not like fire school either I was like mm-hmm. what fighting forest fires that is so not me anyway
1: um well tell us more tell us about your book yeah so my book came about really from people um so i with our program so integrity soils is my company been basically self-employed for over 20 years um we manage we work alongside land managers that cover over 1.2 million acres and working with these people, I have quite a a specific triage or process that I go through in my mind that actually I didn't realize how specific it was until people started going, well, explain how, how did you get to that diagnosis? How is it that you figured out that um, my cows have as like a phosphate deficiency because there's not enough active fungi, like in the soil, how did, how did you come to that? And so the book really goes through the, triage process or the coaching process in terms of how do we identify what enabling factors are in soil and what's putting a limit to full health and production and how do we really build soil and build um, organic matter as quickly as possible on large landscapes as well as in home gardens so you know I work with some of the largest market gardens vegetable production horticulture bison beef sheep you know we work in hugely diverse environments, and it it's like well, what works well in these types of ecosystems and what works well you know if, if you think about going from the New Zealand environment to Montana, they're almost the polar opposite so it's how do you diagnose in those environments, and what are we looking at so I came up with a process that I call the five ms which is <clears throat> looking at what is what is what's you know what's potentially involved in um and what we call the enabling factors. So is, it your, is there an issue with microbiology? Is it a mineral imbalance? Is it low organic matter? Is it your management or is it your mindset? So the five Ms. And um, through going through that process, we go through a diagnostic of how well is that plant photosynthesizing? That's number one. You know, like if your plants are not capturing adequate sunlight energy and converting that into everything that happens in the plant and then feeding microbiology, then the system's not going to work very well. And then the next step is what's happening with water and water infiltration um no that's not the next step air is before that <laughs> so bef- before water comes air and most people think of water because we're so connected to if it doesn't rain or we don't have water going you know then you know your garden's going to fail but actually before that it's actually air movement so the same in the human body if you don't if you're not breathing you're not going to last very long um if you're not able to get water you know maybe you'll live for three days and if you don't have food maybe it's three weeks so i go through this process of diagnostics um, so that you can figure out what is it what is happening on your own property and how do we really take that to the next level and yeah so it was a pretty awesome process to go through writing the book i use a lot of case studies and people's stories to um to convey sometimes what can seem very technical but trying to keep it in a way that makes it really readable I didn't want people just going oh this is a good reference book or this is good technical book or um this is something we're just going to read once and then shelve or maybe just read half of it and shelve and I've had so many uh, messages from people going I've read your book four times I've highlighted all of this and they've sent me photos and I'm like who reads a book four times? You know, like and just being so blown away that um that my intent, which is to kind of try and keep it very engaging, I feel like was pretty successful in the end. Yeah,
0: I think Patty and Robin are both telling me they've also listened to the audio version yes. several times.
1: Yeah, so they can be fluent in New Zealand.
0: <laughs> I'm a um, elementary educator by trade, like taught K through fourth grade. Um, for many years and you know rereading 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 is like something we teach them all the time so I don't know I kind of get it
1: (laughs) yeah yeah but I think um people's lives are so busy these days you know we're we're lucky to kind of push anything into our heads at all and I think that's why audiobooks are so powerful is uh, and I hadn't even realized that I start talking to people and they're like yeah I listen to an audiobook while I'm vacuuming or well, I'm going for a run, or I'm in the car, and I'm like, I didn't even realize there was this whole world of, and maybe it's we we're you know we're totally spinning our wheels because we haven't got any downtime to just contemplate or think because you're listening to audiobooks all the time. But yeah, so um, I've been excited about the audiobook. Well, I, you know, there's
0: times where I like peace and quiet, but when I'm driving or when I'm walking, like nothing's better for me than inspiring. I like to listen to podcasts myself. Mm. Being a podcaster um, is kind of how I got into it. And then I just got a job this summer working for another podcaster and I've been to like over 600 podcast websites in the last two Mm. weeks. So it's kind of neat. I feel like I'm connecting and making new friends again and listening to new shows and, um, But also, yeah, I've been trying to get a little more um, quiet time when I'm in the garden. Yeah. So.
1: Yeah, I think that's how we balance it. How we can balance it out. Yeah.
0: So what would you tell listeners? Because my listeners are probably more backyard gardeners, although they do have surprisingly large um Gardens for backyard gardeners, you know they 're mm-hmm. the kind of people that are you know growing a fair amount of their own produce, like maybe mm-hmm. like what 's the thing they 'd be most surprised about? I know like Patty keeps talking about how organic gardeners sometimes have some of the worst soil anymore because yeah. they 're just they keep tilling it and they keep doing things um you know she 's talked a lot about ways that you can not have to deal with weeds by just not tilling your soil mm-hmm. and just different things like that like. What would you say backyard gardeners maybe would be something you see them surprised about?
1: I think asking those questions, you know, why is it that maybe you have weeds or why do you have pests or diseases and how to really work with that underground livestock, in microbiology, because they are the ones that's providing nutrition and health and disease resistance and insect resistance. So um, yeah, I think it's one of those lights that light bulb moments that goes on for people is really starting to look at what, what is your garden trying to tell you? What is it communicating? What are those weed species that are growing? What are they trying to say? And it becomes this whole world that opens up. If you start looking at your backyard or your lawn in that way of, Oh, that's really curious. You know, actually I'm producing the soil conditions that are perfect for these types of weeds instead of I'm producing, you know, my management's creating the perfect conditions for a lettuce or, or whatever. So, um, yeah, in my, you know, the last time I had a real garden, which is probably six years ago now, um, you know, we create a soil environment that what grows is what I'm planting and seeing very few invasive weed species coming in at all. And if there was anything coming in, they were very soft, you know, like clovers and things. And I'm like, well, that's a pretty good understory or intercropping to be had. I think um, we expect to have these very straight lines and sort of monocultural patches still in gardens. And I think the more we can break it up or go through what Think of as the ugly hair stage where you like just allow um you know more chaos in the garden to to try and replicate nature more, you know, that you've got a diversity of different species and maybe some of them are edible, some of them are medicinal, or some are there for um to attract your pollinator species. But just allowing gardens to to um to be more rampant and and really celebrate the life instead of celebrating you know this of uniformity, I think it's one of those paradigm shifts that would be great to see more gardeners do awesome uh, the ugly hair stage yeah
0: <laughs> I like the way you talk about that, but yep. yeah i think I think um in a lot of ways that's definitely true like people are too used to saying "Ooh, dandelions are ugly we got to get rid of those dandelions like i've been trained to believe that dandelions are bad so yeah. breaking that um you know theory like the and then and that is something patty's also talked about like dandelions are a sign that you're you know you're, they're reaching down um because of you know signs in the soil that it's not as healthy as it should be or maybe like you're saying like your that soil is the perfect soil for a dandelion so if you don't want a dandelion to grow there you need to change the soil so that it's the perfect thing for maybe more clover i'm always telling people you need more clover you need more clover And we've been like one thing we realized last summer is that if we let the clover kind of grow more and pay attention to when it goes to seed like we'll kind of mow around the clover it's spreading so much more in our Mm -hmm. yard and we're getting a much nicer um amount of clover mixed in
1: nice
0: we kind of have a lot of lawn at our place because it's our fire break because we're in a pretty Mm. um forested area
1: yeah yeah it sounds like It's coming along then. Nice.
0: Yeah, it has. Like when I look at pictures of like when I first moved here in the early 90s and how rocky and just like we didn't have running water for the first six years that I lived here. And so there was no water going on the lawn. Like, And then just also like Mike has added tons of like manure and compost and things to it. Mm. Just it's really come a long ways. Anyway, let's get back to... Well, what do you want to talk about? Do you want to talk more about the, was it five M's? The five M's, M's. Five M's. Five M's.
1: Well, I think, um, yeah, I think really thinking of your garden system as an ecosystem and really considering that anytime you're disturbing it, so if that is cultivation, which is can be one of the most destructive things that we do, in any environment it becomes all right well actually I'm going to cultivate so how do I repair that disturbance how do I feed that um, microbiological community to to kind of get things up and going again Um, so yeah I'm a big fan of vermiculture I actually started my career as a commercial vermicomposter um, and then teaching kids in schools and households how to reduce waste and And part of what I was doing with the commercial side of the vermicomposting was making a vermicast that was specific for different needs. So growing um, a compost that was for gardens, for instance, so much more bacterially dominated than a product that I would produce for avocados, which is very fungal dominated. So thinking about what kind of species have I got above ground and then how can I support that through the right or, you you know, the more aligned microbial community below ground. Um, And most people I see doing um, worm bins make a product that's far too bacterial. Like they're actually growing something that's made for weeds. And the way to tell is probably to put like, if you've got compost or vermicast to put it out on trays outside, just in the weather and just have a look at um, what starts to grow on it. You know, and if you do see, you know, maybe it's lots of dandelions or it's thistles or it's something really invasive, something um, like a, I don't know, some kind of wandering plant species. Um, or do you see clover and soft grasses growing? You know, you really want to see the clover and soft grasses as being the ones that germinate in that. And so it's a pretty good indicator for if it's very bacterial, then you're going to grow a lot of those primitive weeds, um, a lot of those sort of invasive, um, like the quack grasses, the. Um, foxtail barley grass, the, you know, the more primitive grasses that generally we don't want to see. Um, they love bacterial conditions. Um, so yeah, it becomes something to really consider. A lot of what we buy like commercially of compost is often very bacterial. Um, and so it's working. If you are getting compost or vermicast, asking those people for a microbial test or asking them if they're even thinking about microbiology. And if they're not even thinking about microbiology, I'm probably not going to buy compost from those people yeah and and you know um there are people in montana that are certainly thinking about this and starting to produce better quality biological products
0: so how do you like is there a way like if you're making your own like worm bin or vermiculture compost like is there a way to
1: make it more fungal yeah yeah. Um, so, uh, what they like to feed on is more complex stuff. So worms will survive just on vegetable scraps, um, and manures. if That's what you're doing. Uh, but if we want to feed more of the fungi, we need the more complex, slow to break down stuff. So not just paper, but things like, um, wood chips. Like I'm a big fan of wood chips and white wood chips. So not spruce and pine, which is probably a lot of what people have got. Um, but, Olders, cottonwoods, poplars, willows, birch, beech, those kind of species. And they just make fungi go nuts. So I um, used to just stockpile wood chip like that and maybe put a little bit of molasses or something just to get the bacteria excited as well. And to look at my vermicast, the fungal vermicast, it would look like mostly it's wood chips. And then you dig through it and there's all the vermicast through the wood chips. But that that fungal dominance comes from them having those kind of foods to, to feed on. And so I would think the same thing with my garden is I would incorporate those wood chips. And often um, people are concerned that, oh, you're going to be robbing nitrogen from the environment if you're doing that. And what we found with those species is if you have a pile of those kind of wood chips sitting around, have a look and you'll see right around the edge of the pile as the grass actually grows more vigorously that the carbon to nitrogen ratio on that's pretty tight. It's not the same as spruce or pine because those species um, have a very high carbon to nitrogen ratio. So the, yes, they're going to take nitrogen out of the ground, but they also have tannins and antimicrobials. So they really do nuke, um, which is great if you're trying to mulch and you don't want other species growing, then, you know, those species are good for that. But if you really wanted to encourage beneficial fungi, then it's those whitewood species. Um, and also if you have a worm bin and it's making a leachate or a liquid that's stripping through the bottom, that's automatically telling me that your system's too bacterial and you don't have enough of these carbon-based materials. Um, and I don't use the leachate. I would put that back through my worm bin um, if I was making any um and i know people get really excited about it but uh, you know your system shouldn't make any extra liquid unless you want it to and then you could pour water through the top but if it's got stuff leaking through the bottom then it's often like the byproducts of vegetable scraps or whatever you're putting in there that's just kind of breaking down and you know there could be pathogens in there and yeah it's it's not ideal i know people swear by it and i'm sorry but um (laughs) you're better to make um a wormy liquid from finished vermicast that's fungal dominated.
0: Wow. Uh, And there's probably a lot of downed trees like that, at least where we are. We've had big storms lately. And so, you know, I'm glad you told me that because like our wood chips that I was thinking of adding are mostly pine and larch. Mm. But yeah. we did have a aspen tree fall down in the big storm the other day. That's right in front of my window. So oh, actually. that would uh, be lovely.
1: Yeah. Larch would uh, be, larch, larch are deciduous, don't they?
0: Yeah, they lose their needles.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, they're deciduous. Big yeah, no, maybe not. Um, you know, if they've got those strong smells, those are the antimicrobials. Um, so, yeah, we we don't want to use... And that's why we use it for things like um, in barns with cows or calves and things It's because they're antimicrobials is that, that type of sawdust. So we don't want to be using that. We want to be encouraging microbiology. Okay. Good to know.
0: Uh, so what else did you want to talk about then?
1: <laughs> There's a whole world out there. Um <laughs> Uh, let's talk about insects. And it's a crazy one. It is a crazy one. I'm talking about bugs. Birds. Yeah. Um, yeah. Insects are another great topic, I think, for home gardeners to be thinking about. So typically, you know, if you're seeing the sap sucking insects, they're telling you that there's an imbalance, um, more specifically with the type of protein formation. So we call these the incomplete or funny proteins. Um, so something's going on in that plant to make it stressed. Maybe you're trying to grow a plant in the wrong ecotype or wrong time time of the year, it's too hot or too dry, or that plant doesn't have adequate microbiology or the nutrients that it needs. So it starts to form these incomplete proteins, which basically ring the dinner bell then for insect pests. Um, a lot of people may or may not, be aware of this but they may be using neonicotinoids so seed treatments on their grass seeds or on some of the uh, vegetable plants that we're using so making sure that you're using untreated seed. Um, through the writing of the book I discovered that those neonicotinoids which really should be banned um, they are part of what's causing the mad bee disease or sudden colony collapses um, let alone all the other insects that are disappearing is that those neonicotinoids change 600 genes in the plant. And some of those genes um, are involved in cell wall strength and disease and insect prevention. So by putting some of these seed treatments on, we actually are weakening that plant to then make it more vulnerable. So it's something to think about when you are buying seed. And especially if you're buying robin seeds, you'll be getting lovely untreated organic seed. So thinking about that when we're making purchases. But really insects are there to tell you that something has gone on in terms of the nutrition and the health of that plant. So there are trace elements that are linked in with nutrition um, and and plant defense. So things like manganese and zinc and copper and um, there's another one, boron. So um, making sure that we have adequate trace elements available to those plants. And if you are using herbicides, what's interesting is they tie up many of these important trace elements and so you could use a herbicide, um, maybe around the plants that you're growing. Uh, and then that ties up these trace elements. And then it makes that plant more vulnerable then to an insect attack. So there's a correlation between using herbicides under trees and then seeing, um, I think you guys have these, um, what's these, there's caterpillars that make these huge big, like white, like spider web all over the trees. Do you get that in your area?
0: We do. What
1: are those things
0: called? What are those things?
1: Um, let me see if my husband knows. Anyway, we're we're starting to see more um, insect imbalances. So while we're going through an insect again, and so seventy five percent of insects um, are in decline or are, uh, in collapse or just disappearing. Um, so numbers as well as diversity. And what's interesting is while these insect populations globally are collapsing. Um, the pest insects are getting more. So it's like the conditions that we're providing, and it's the same as looking at weeds. We're providing the conditions for insect pests instead of the beneficial. So for every one pest, there's 1,700 non-target insects and and beneficial insects, let's say. So we need to be thinking more about how do we encourage more diversity of those insects because they're the ones that are going to take out the bad guys. if you want to call them bad guys um they're going to provide you know more ecosystem services they are providing interestingly more nitrogen to your garden system but really thinking instead of how do i kill this actually how do i create an environment that encourages more of these because that's what suppresses the insect pests um We use a lot of seed treatments um, that are biologically based. So I might use one that's vermicast or compost, making a slurry onto seeds, or actually buying some of these commercial products like trichoderma, which, so trichoderma is a type of fungus that eats um, disease fungi. But what it also does is it works in tandem with the plant to produce some of these um, plant hormones that defend it against an insect attack. So it produces something called proteinase, which is what the plant produces to defend itself when an insect starts to nibble. So some of these, the, the microbiology in that soil system work in tandem with the plant to provide plant defense against insects. So I quite like using things like milk, and I'm just using tiny amounts of milk, like a teaspoon of milk per square yard diluted onto leaf surfaces. If I do see some insect attack, because that will actually help to complex those amino acids or those proteins inside the leaf. And so enable that plant to be able to defend itself. So um, you can use any type of milk, like can be um, um, pasteurized is fine. Not, not 2% milk because that's actually not milk, obviously. Uh, But yeah, if you can get raw milk, obviously that, you know, that'll be better, but the milk from from the grocery store is fine um and i'm a big fan of using um fulvic acid and humic acid so those are soft brown coals um that we can put on as as um fulvic anyway we'll put on as a folia that's also going to help that plant build up its immune system and its defense system against things like your chewing insects so yeah again it, it comes down to all right what is this thing trying to tell me and then how do i support optimal plant health so that um those things just become irrelevant and then it becomes instead of focusing on the thing I don't want, focusing on the things that I do. I
0: like want. that. Focusing on the things that I do want instead of focusing on what you don't want. Uh, but like yeah. if you were going to put, like you could put milk on anything or like on trees or like on bushes or like on your vegetables or. Yeah.
1: Nice. Yeah. Yeah, all of it. All of it. And you're putting it on very dilute. um, But what it contains is a little bit of sugar, a little bit of calcium, a little bit of phosphorus, and it drives lactobacillus, which is a very beneficial organism that most people are familiar with, because it's what you take as a probiotic for our own health. So lactobacillus is in the atmosphere. And the minute you put milk out onto any surface, it goes nuts. And it's a very, very beneficial probiotic for plant health. Trees and vegetables um, all benefit from lactobacillus.
0: Uh, mm. What else did you want to talk about, I guess? <laughs> I get so lot. My listeners are always like, don't be so stuck to your script. But as soon as I'm off my script, I'm totally just like,
1: I don't know what to say. <laughs> Need you to read the book. Because um, <laughs> then you have a million questions. Uh when we could talk. People people want to probably have practical stuff like how do you do a seed treatment? Or... Okay,
0: and why do you do a seed treatment?
1: Yeah, that's a good question.
0: Is that like an inoculation? Like, I know we had to do that with like the fava beans or something. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, with, with fava beans or with peas, then you're inoculating with the rhizobia, the bacteria that's going to help them fix nitrogen. But with seed dressings, um, or even when you're transplanting plants to dip them in some of these biologicals so like a compost extract and we can make a compost extract just by putting compost into a burlap sack and running water through it or you can do the same thing with vermicast Um, and if you're going to go straight into the garden then you could actually um, you know you can mist that on with a sprayer or dip seed actually into that liquid before you you put it out. Um, you can also make more of a pancake slurry so just mix that compost so it is a little bit like you know pancake consistency the batter and we put in a small amount of molasses and a little bit of milk again um, and stir that up so it's called Korean natural farming Um, and you can just stir that up and then um, you know rates depend on how much seed obviously you're putting in. I'm trying to think we we do things on a tonnage basis, not a um, garden basis, but you know, so you don't need a lot, but um, enough just to yeah get that, that seed kind of really well coated. And then we're going to put that out into the garden with the seeds. Um, and what we find, and it's really interesting is that between 40 to a hundred percent of nutrition for that plant, early nutrition while it's germinating comes from that microbiological relationship. So, It's gonna support optimal plant health. It's gonna make sure that that plant is totally covered in beneficial microbiology. So as the roots go down, it's gonna keep that microbiology growing. And as the leaves come out, they're all gonna be covered with beneficial microbes. And we're we're just discovering more and more about this process and about how important this process is. Um, One of those processes is called rhizophagy. So it basically means that as that root is penetrating, and that root tip, it's feeding microbiology and then it absorbs those microbes, takes the nutrients from them. Um, yeah, it's basically like feeding and then killing its, its beneficial companions as it grows through that that soil environment. And those microbiology are able to access things like phosphorus and trace elements and nitrogen that the plant can't do on its own. So it's a beneficial relationship in terms of the plant is feeding the bacteria, but it's not symbiotic because they end up eating the bacteria which is kind of cool um yeah and part of that process too is you get an irritation inside that root tip and it forms more root hairs so when we dig out plants and I really um I really encourage you to do this is to have a look at what's happening in that root zone and what you want to see is you never want to see clean naked roots those roots should be totally covered by what we call the ry- the rhizosheath. <laughs> or I like to call the Rastafarian roots, man, because these Rastafarian, they look like great big dreadlocks. And is that what your root system looks like? And that's what it should look like. So that rhizosheath is all about the plants pumping sugar and fats and all sorts of other metabolites into that root system and feeding microbiology. And in response, they're bringing the nutrients to the plant. So we see this really thickening up of a very dark, Um, sticky substance around those roots. And what that sheath does is it defends the plant from fluctuations in temperature. It defends it against fluctuations in moisture. If you have a difference in pH, let's say your soil is really alkaline, maybe it's like 8.5 or it's very acidic at like 4.5, that rhizosheath and the microbiology in there can alter the pH of that root system by as much as two. So it means instead of experiencing 8.5, it could be experiencing 6.5 or 4.5. It's experiencing 6.5 again through this ability of that riser sheath to buffer that environment. So we're seeing some incredible stuff in terms of sodic soils, in terms of high, Aluminium soils, or sorry, aluminum, um, is that we have systems that are able to defend and buffer themselves. So um, the temperature becomes very buffered. Uh, So if you have naked roots, so they're all just sitting there and they they don't have any rhizosheath, then the minute a cloud comes over, that plant's stressed because suddenly it's gone from hot to cold. Like it'll happen automatically. Whereas if you have that protection around that root, then now that plant's able to defend itself. So I do get very excited about seeing rhizosheath development. It's one of the indicators that your mycorrhizal fungi, which are very important, are, are functional; that your um, root hairs are functional, um, and microbiology is working. So yeah, if you dig up some plants, and know often it's hard if we've planted a plant to dig it up and have a look, but just have a look and see: have I got that kind of development? So the seed treatments. Um, you know, vermicast or compost or commercial seed treatments really help that plant get a good start and develop those rhizosheaths and really help to ensure that we're growing the most top quality nutrient dense food that we can.
0: So like you would do this to like any seeds, like tomato seeds, pepper seeds, like every seeds that you're going to plant, you would make this little mixture and put the seeds in them and like let it sit for? Yep like 20 minutes or overnight or like before you bury the plants in the ground
1: yeah it it depends on the hardness of the seed so you know for something like beets i'm gonna soak that probably for 24 hours if it was um i'm trying to think little seeds little chamomile seeds or you know things that um like yeah quite small and have a very thin layer then maybe i'm gonna soak them for 20 minutes Um, if we make the slurry we can and the host (laughs) i don't know what what happened i
0: don't either i was typing in the chat nicole where'd you go and it just totally disappeared on me i got um the spinning wheel and then i don't know i don't even know i got it back i went to my calendar and rejoined the meeting
1: (laughs) well it it worked perfectly because you disappeared right in the gap anyway so like it kept recording so there's nothing we need to repeat I don't know how long you've been gone for (laughs) but um yeah the recording's fine
0: okay cool uh well do you want to do like my part that I call like the getting to the root of things where I ask like do you have a least favorite activity to do in the garden like is there something you have to force yourself to get out there and do even if you're at somebody else's ranch
1: (laughs) yeah um yeah we could do that if you want to do that?
0: Okay. So what okay. is your least favorite activity? <laughs>
1: um sometimes I think it's not like a least favorite it's it's um getting motivated to do things on time, you know, in a timely fashion. I often um because I travel so much when I when I do have gardens, um then it's the all right this needs to be done at this time and I'll be traveling or whatever and then, you know, things get weedy and or I just yeah, I miss the timing for that. Or suddenly I've just got this abundance of produce all at once. And I'm like, I really need to be much more of a stickler. But I think I really see myself as a guerrilla gardener. So I get these massive fits of inspiration and I'll go and build someone a garden bed, which I've just done at this ranch and plant a whole lot of stuff. And then I leave. And so I never get to see the, the fruits of my labor, let's say. So you know, driving past my old farm to see like the orchard now is just just performing really really well, and you see all these fruit on these trees and the fruits falling on the ground because the people that are there probably don't appreciate what what they're growing and and that's often like my least favorite thing is going back to see some of those gardens and orchards that are planted that yeah, like maybe people aren't appreciating. Or maybe, like, they're just amazing. And I'm like, oh, I wish that, yeah, I could still have access to those avocados <laughs> or, or yeah, those plum trees. Because, yeah, we grew these beautiful, like, Japanese blood plums. And, oh, they were amazing. I lost my son one day. I couldn't find him. And he was, like, three years old. And when I was panicking, We he had these really steep concrete stairs. Anyway, I run down the stairs and I can't find him and I go all the way up my dad's driveway and then up around the bend, I find him underneath the blood plum, just like he just had red juices running everywhere and the smile on his face and yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> but a great <funny> yeah. story. <laughs> yeah, he's very mischievous. But anyway, those plums were just the flavor on them, you know, some of these old heirloom species. Anyway, yeah. So like... I think for me, it's it's just my least favorite thing is making, is not having the time.
0: Well, I can totally relate to that. My listeners know there's many days where I go where I don't even make it to the garden and just, uh, and then sometimes, yeah, you get back and you're like, oh my goodness, look at all this work I have to do. Or I'm notorious for, (laughs) like, right now I have these plants that I bought, these perennials I bought like two weeks ago that I have to find a place to put them in the ground. And I've been slowly, I bought nine of them, I think, and I'm down to... I have three lavenders and two others, so I'm down to five. So four of them have got in, but I've got to find a place for these other plants. I'm always buying things and like, yeah, let's grow this. Or I'll buy seeds yeah. and Michael will be like, those take a hundred days. You would have had to put yeah. them in like, anyway. Uh, so then is that your favorite activity? Like seeing places that you've built or what's your favorite activity?
1: In the garden? Yeah. yeah. Or, eating. I mean, basically, yeah oh okay right yeah I have favorite activities not necessarily in the garden um <laughs> <laughs> ah yes I think it's those um meditative moments maybe when you're like just watering or watching things grow I mean I just it's always such a buzz just to see things grow and 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 grow of high quality so one of the meters that we use is the refractometer to measure how well is that plant photosynthesizing and and it gives us an indicator on nutrient density and if you use a refractometer like in a grocery store you'll find most most vegetables kind of are between one to three on their percent rating which um is percent dissolved solids and sugars which is not good um And you can taste it. So it makes that food kind of bitter or flavorless or watery. Um, So I was growing kale that was at about 15% or 15 degrees bricks. Now that I I don't think I've ever seen. Oh, I think Patty, Patty Armbrister grows high bricks um, kale like this and you can taste it. I mean, it's just beautiful. And so just to watch my son take a handful of kale as he was walking to the school bus and eat it. And I'm like, that's not normal. <laughs> like, that's not normal that a child would want to take a handful of kale. Um, yeah. So just to see the quality that's possible and to, to to, to taste that nutrition that can come back. So that's probably some of my favorite memories of, of, of gardening is just that real buzz of, what does it look like to have really healthy systems? Because I think on the whole, we don't know we, we can't even imagine because we grow in, in mostly in very poor degraded, biologically biological deserts really. Um so yeah, for me that's that's the reward, that's the excitement.
0: That was perfect. Uh perfect. certainly nobody said that before. So well oh, cool. I mean Mandy girth did talk a little bit about nutrient density, but mm-hmm. um anyway, what's what's the best gardening advice you've ever received?
1: Uh, the best gardening advice is probably to align myself with nature. So to to think, what would this look like in, in the natural system? How? Yeah, and that's really pushed a lot of my diversity thinking and thinking about how do I get more biological diversity as well as above-ground diversity. Um, but I've been given a lot of really, really good advice, and I think having those early mentors was probably my best advice, was finding those that would give the good advice. Um, you know, I think this would come down to Patty as well as having those amazing and Robin people like that in a community that have such a, a wealth of knowledge um, and, you know, to, to listen to them and to see what people are doing in my environment. Um, yeah. I was very lucky with some of my early mentors and and just feeling like, systems just worked well because i'd had good advice to start with um yeah on the vermiculture side and on you know planting avocados we just uh i think out of 700 avocados we only lost a handful and they were all planted at the bottom of gullies where it's really wet and avocados don't like wet feet and we knew that um but yeah i think to 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 to, you know spend time with elders or spend time with my grandmother who I just admire so much um so it's hard to pick one like one little snippet of advice because I think it's that that generation that we need to be spending more time with and really asking questions and you know they're sitting on a gold mine that we don't want to lose
0: I think that's actually really perfect I don't know it's because I said I got this other podcasting job and I'm working for somebody who has a podcast about personal development and things but just I just feel like when you get help from somebody who's doing something like your growth is going to be exponential, you know, you're like, you can only go so far on your own, but when you get a mentor who's been doing it and it's just, I, so I personally think that is Mm. perfect advice. How about, Mm. do you have a favorite tool? Like if you had to move or like, is there something you either make sure you have when you go to New Zealand or come back? Like, what
1: could you not live without? A shovel. (laughs) I cannot live without a shovel but you know we dig a lot of holes we're always digging holes and what's interesting is how little holes people actually dig to look at their own property or their garden or their you know their own soil it just blows me away that people would even buy a property and they don't dig holes they don't know what they're sitting on and, and sometimes you can be sitting on something pretty disastrous um and so yeah I I don't I mean, I'm constantly seeming to lose them. I'd love to have, like, oh, I've had this shovel for 30 years, but <laughs> I think between traveling, I just seem to leave them the back. Well,
0: what I'm the- wondering is, like, are you talking about, like, a big, long-handled shovel yeah. or, like, a hand trowel?
1: You are no, talking what about I, a what long I, shovel. What, what I would normally call a spade, but I find here people call them shovels. So they're square-nosed, hole-digging shovels. So, yeah, we're, you know, we're digging i guess more holes than than necessarily like the garden trowel but i mean i think if you're in a garden you wouldn't want to be anywhere without a trowel um but yeah just just to be observing what's happening with soil structure and color and water infiltration and smell and all of there's so much that we get just from digging holes so you know really recommend people dig more holes my husband used to have a
0: business called Dirt Diggers. <laughs> it was a backhoe business and he did install septic systems, but he like, I'll never forget like us sitting, like reading that manual he had to take to take the test about all the different soil things. And like, he pretty much knew the questions right away. Whereas like, I would have had to study that book for like weeks to pass the test. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, how about, do you have a favorite recipe you like to cook from the garden
1: or eat from the garden? Baba ganoush. I love baba ganoush. A good baba ganoush with eggplants. I was just going to say, is that eggplant? Eggplant, yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh, and I think some of my favorites were um, artichoke, like globe artichoke. Like sitting down with that whole ritual of steaming the big, um, you know, the big heads on them before they flower and having different dipping sauces and having a group of friends around. And we just, you know, dipped all the artichoke leaves. and. Uh, yeah it was just such a cool experience it was it was really fun i mean it's it's a lot of work to eat artichoke but it was well worth it
0: i was just listening there's this new podcast i've been listening to called salad with a side of fries and she her recipe this week i think included uh was about artichokes my mom always was big on cooking artichokes
1: yeah Um, yeah And, and i like the other jerusalem artichokes as well like they're often plants that people think of as being weeds, but we had a whole, um, like a, not quite a shelterbelt, but we had a lot of glo- um, Jerusalem artichoke on the side of the road, you know, in that kind of really rough area where things didn't grow very well. The Jerusalem artichoke grew well and then cooked up, cook it up or make it into little chips. Or I really like the flavor. I know I've introduced it to people here. Oh, well, part of the problem is that it makes you fart, which <laughs> – which is you know that's a that's a conversation topic in itself <laughs> um but yeah i mean i really like them i like the flavor <laughs>
0: uh do you do you have a favorite podcast do you listen to podcasts at all or not really
1: uh not really i just find them i'm just i'm too busy um but yeah probably i guess one that comes to mind is the regenerative agriculture podcast by john kemp um but yeah, and saying that I've probably only listened to maybe four. But uh yeah, I, I I often listen to audiobooks when I'm driving. I feel like I'm too disorganized to work out how to keep downloading <laughs> when you're out of reception or whatever when you're right.
0: Driving. That's what drives me the craziest these days is just um, trying to listen to shows and constantly having to be where there's a signal because my days are frequently or like a strong enough signal that it's gonna download, which technically podcasts are pretty easy to download but um yeah I hate that when I like as soon as I go out of signal range and then I can't get um the episodes like it says it's there but then as soon as you lose the signal you get
1: the little signal not working Yeah, I don't, I don't understand it I mean I feel like I'm relatively technologically savvy but it seems like technology is changing all the time and I'm just like okay I'm good with audiobooks I've got the app I download the book I'm good um, Yeah
0: see aren't books like that too like you have to download the book ahead of time like yeah the, you got to the download files yeah it is the those are files. yeah um but yeah it's all uh i just i like being able to listen my worry with books is like i'm more likely to fall asleep while i'm driving if i'm listening to a book whereas i feel like podcasts kind of inspire me and give me more energy whereas a book will i'm afraid it will put me to sleep but yeah um yeah i think uh it's all it's all good any kind of learning that you're doing while you're anyway do you have a favorite internet resource where do you find yourself surfing on the web
1: uh google scholar google scholar is probably my number one spot that gets used daily so what's google scholar google scholar is where you go for um peer-reviewed literature so looking for Um, like at the moment I've got really interesting client that's got a barium problem and I'm like, what is barium? (laughs) What? Yeah. And so, yeah, going to Google Scholar to make sure that I'm, I'm looking up for information that's actually reputable. There's so much stuff on the internet now that is people's opinions, which is fine. Um, or just false or yeah. So I, I, I trust Google Scholar than I do for most of my information sources, especially around technical stuff you know or what you know what is this microbiology linked to stuff around rhizophagy um yeah i really I really enjoy geeking out on the 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 research um, yeah so that's that's probably the the main page that is saved and is referred to a lot, which probably makes my life sound really boring but <laughs> i really enjoy it
0: i love doing research i'm so excited to check that out especially like so my new favorite podcast that i have just been like binging on is called white homework and it's by this (laughs) woman and sometimes she brings her sister on or different people but like you know when george floyd was murdered they Everybody kept saying read White Fragility, but to me, this girl is like White Fragility on steroids, and she like just brings her passion to it, her authenticity, and she just explains it in such a better way, and I just feel like, I hope she becomes like the most popular podcast and she just changes the world. Like she's really into like conflict resolution and restorative justice. And she just talks about so many great things. And so she actually has homework that you can go and buy the lesson plans. And the one that I bought was about um, incarceration and trying to find sources for like, how long does it take the police to respond to a, um, you know, thing in Montana or how many people are in jail? Like one of the, most recent ones i could find was like 2014 which to me is like you know i want 2020 2019 2018 so stuff like that um, and and to find like i'm really big on media literacy like i want to start taking videos of like advertising on the television and being like this is media literacy you know this is fake news this is not i feel like i'm constantly on facebook always telling people um hello, that is fake news, and here is a resource to, you know, verify that what you're sharing is not um, the right information. Anyway, off topic, back to a favorite reading material. Like, do you have a book or a magazine besides your Um, for the love of soil book that I know listeners remember if you get it and when you read it, make sure you leave a five-star review on Amazon. So more people will read it because we know that this is a fantastic book that we want everybody reading and everybody learning about. Not just us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's got lots of good American case studies too. It's not just, well, it's all over the world. It's fun.
0: But do you have another book besides that one to recommend the listeners?
1: Um, i I really like seeing what acres u s a is publishing so acres u s a is um you know they publish a lot of books um and they also have a monthly magazine um they're kind of the world's leading voice i guess in regenerative agriculture organic um yeah anyway, so they produce some great stuff i'm really enjoying um Nourishment by doc uh, by Professor Fred Provenza. Um and, and in nourishment he's talking oh about his journey, but um, around the intelligence of animals in terms of what they're eating and plant metabolites and their relationship with human health. So it, it's just it, he's just such a beautiful writer that yeah I'd highly recommend nourishment.
0: Perfect. Nobody's recommended that, that I can remember. Okay. Mm -hmm. So here's my final question. Unless like, is there anything that you feel like you really want to cover that we didn't cover? No, we could. (laughs) Okay. If there's one change you would like to see to create a greener world, what would it be? For example, is there a charity organization you're passionate about or project you'd like to see put into action? Like, What do you feel, Nicole, is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally, nationally, or on a global scale?
1: Well, I think what's missing globally um, comes down to some pretty simple principles, which is how do we start to value interconnectedness and diversity? And that comes through agriculture. It comes through Black Lives Matter. It comes through everything, really, because I think if we start to see how connected we are to the earth and to each other, then a lot of our actions become impossible. You know, like if we just started to, to change our mindsets about how, how we interact with the world, um, then to be like a capitalist vulture starts to become untenable because how could you do that to another living person or to, the water or to the air or whatever so yeah um and and this is what I'm really excited about is I'm seeing these mind shift changes that people are starting to wake up to the fact of how connected we are and and if we continue to ignore how connected we are then things like you know climactic variability it's it's going to get worse and what's happening with food security and food systems it's going to get worse and and COVID certainly highlighting a lot of this so um that's what I'd like to see you know and how do we how do we educate our children from the very beginning and and how the school system support that and you know let's bring it on are you a rock star
0: millennial born between
1: 1980 and 1995 no sorry (laughs) ma'am um okay uh, Uh, um (laughs) <laughs> well,
0: tell, Nicole, tell listeners how to connect with you. And again, I am going to repeat my plea for everyone to go to Amazon and leave you a five-star review for your book, For the Love of Soil, Strategies to Regenerate Our Food Production Systems. Get it, read it, review it, share it with your friends, buy one for somebody for Father's Day or Mother's Day or Ooh. what holiday, I guess we missed those, for the 4th of July. i know this book even if i haven't read it yet i know it's changing our world it's so recommended and just um something that we're all gonna want to dive into i know i am totally interested in trying to figure out how i can help our soil because there were so Mm. many little looks from patty armister when she was looking around my place i was like, like yes i know i dug up those weeds and yes i know there's brown soil there that's not covered and um she yeah. just like the one biggest thing she said about our place was like you could be growing so much more food.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and she grows so much food. So yeah, it's part of that mentors, isn't it? See people that it feel inspired by people like that and see what they're doing.
0: Yeah. And hiring people like you and her to help you in your system. Because like you said, it's amazing how much you can, you can learn and you can, and you can, and I was just downloading the video so I can make a post so people can see what Patty really said here. Like, it was just amazing. So much work, just so valuable. Anyway, tell listeners how to connect with you, your website and just um, anything that they want need to know.
1: Yeah. So my website is www.integritysoils.co.nz. So NZ for New Zealand Um, or NZ, don't you say? Yeah. Um, And and, yeah, connecting with me is pretty difficult. Uh, So a lot of the time I am out of reception and yeah, I'm working on a lot of big projects behind the scenes right now. So watch this space as I have a, um, foundations to soil health online program that will hopefully be released in a few months and um, and also an intensive uh, master class that we'll be releasing with a workbook and um, video resources so yeah that's that's probably the best way for people to connect
0: okay i'm going to repeat your website one more with the american accent time. <laughs> integrity or nz yes for new zealand and thank you so much nicole for everything cool. you are doing to change our world for teaching people for helping people for being an inspiration and just sharing with us today on the organic gardener podcast because i know listeners are going to love this and just Um, you're full of just great knowledge like I just feel like I learned a ton about things that I can do to help our soil make things grow better and help our little insects and bugs and um, things
1: Mm -hmm. bring on some life thank you so much Jackie really enjoyed this
0: oh thank you have a great day
1: you too all right have a great day everybody thanks Hey
0: everyone, so I just want to remind you that this is the time that is most important you're taking good notes about what's going on in your garden, what's working well, what's not working well, what do you wish you were going to change, and believe me, if you think you are going to remember it come next February and March when it's time to order supplies or do your designs. The best thing you can do is right now start taking notes. And if you don't have a journal already, I just want to mention from Amazon, you can support the Green Organic Gardener podcast by purchasing our journal. Um, It's a blank journal. It's got a beautiful picture of a butterfly on our lilacs that I took. It's got lined pages and blank pages. Um, And actually, we get more from that, I think, than we do from the Organic Oasis Master guidebook so um it would be a great way to support the show and help you most of all keep a good record of what's going right and what you don't want to forget to change for next year do you know someone who would benefit from the organic gardener podcast if you like what you hear we'd love it if you'd share the organic gardener podcast with a friend thanks again for listening and remember grow local